Hello. Hey, there we go. How are we doing today? Yes, happy Sunday. It has been long enough since I have been here. I feel like I need to introduce myself. My name is Matt. I'm a pastor here at Friendship Church, and today I am filling in for Pastor Pappy. I hope that everyone here has taken to calling Kenny Pastor Pappy. We're working on getting it changed on the website. Uh, we're excited for the blessings that have come into their lives. Uh, if you haven't had an opportunity to see adorable pictures of Kenny holding his little granddaughter, Kennedy, come and see me after the service and I'll show you some pictures. Uh, so adorable. Uh, he just is enraptured with that little girl that he is holding. Uh, you guys, I get to take us through the final sermon in our series that Kenny has been leading us through called Exodus the Deliverer. Right? What, what has Kenny been talking about each week as we have come together? We have been looking at how God has delivered Israel and the ways that it reminds us of the way that He has delivered us. And so we have seen that the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt and it reminds us that we were enslaved in our sins. We've seen the way that God saved Israel from death through the provision of a substitute lamb whose blood was spread on the doorpost. And it is a reminder to us that God has saved us through the lamb who came to take away the sins of the world. We have seen God save Israel by defeating their primary enemies, Pharaoh and Egypt in the waters of the Red Sea. And it is a reminder to us that God has defeated our primary enemies, sin and death, on the cross. Last week we saw the people of Israel thirsty to the point where they thought they were going to die. And through the use of a log, God brings about salvation to the people of Israel and they drink fully from the waters. And it is a reminder to us that through what Jesus did on a log, we drink fully from the living waters that God brings into our life. And of course, last week we saw God provide miracle bread from heaven in order to save his people. And in John chapter 6, Jesus says, this miracle bread from heaven, this was just a foreshadowing of the great bread that comes down from heaven and brings salvation to your souls. And anyone who eats of this bread and drinks of the living water, they'll never hunger and thirst again. And so with each stop we have made through this journey in Exodus, we have been looking towards the greater salvation that it points to through the person of Jesus Christ. And today, in our final study in Exodus 17, that's your cue. You can go to Exodus 17 in your Bibles on your devices. We're going to see God once again save His people, and it's going to remind us of the great salvation that He has brought into our lives. Exodus 17 begins with a very familiar obstacle for the people of Israel. Once again, they are wandering in a dry wilderness and they are without any water. And so how do the people handle that? They remember all of the ways that God has powerfully provided for them. In the previous days, in the previous weeks, one provision after another, and they give God thanks and they ask Him for water and faithfully trust in Him. Isn't that how they handle it? No, that's not the M.O. What's the M.O.? Right? They, they get worried. They experience anxiety. And out of that, they grumble, complain, and quarrel with their leaders. Verses 2 and 3. 
Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Let me be honest. If I do an inventory of my life, the people of Israel remind me of me many times here. The people of Israel remind me of me on many occasions. God has provided for them again and again and again. He just made a dry road through the Red Sea. He just defeated the most powerful army on earth with water. He he just provided water for them to drink with a log and amazing bread from heaven. And they look at all of this provision, 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 provision. Look at God's powerful provision and they see a new obstacle. And what is their response? To look at their amazing God and how powerful He is and His ongoing provision? No, it is to focus on the obstacle and say, what are we going to do? And they experience worry and anxiety, which leads them to grumbling and quarreling. What, what is their problem here? It's a problem that I face so many times where God has provided everything I need again and again and again and again, and I face a new obstacle in my life, and what do I do? I get focused in on that obstacle, and I experience worry and anxiety, and I go, what is going to happen? How are we going to do this? And it might even lead to complaining and grumbling in my life instead of focusing back on God and all of His great provision. What did the people of Israel need to do here? They needed to change their focus from the obstacle to their greater God. When we focus on the obstacles, we experience fear, worry, and complaining. When we focus fully on God, we experience faith, courage, and trust. When the people of Israel were were camped by the Red Sea and the Egyptian army was coming upon them, Exodus 14 is very clear that they saw the Egyptian army. They were focused on the Egyptian army. And God called on them in Exodus 14 to see them no longer because they were no longer going to be a problem. God calls them to shift their focus from the obstacle that's on its way to Him and His power and His provision. He didn't want them focused on the Egyptian army. He wanted them focused on the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud that were accompanying them on the way that he had overcome everything that the Egyptians had in ten great miraculous plagues. He wanted them focused in on those things, not focused on the obstacles. Because when we're focused on the obstacles, we experience fear and worry and complaining. God wants us to shift our focus. This isn't a problem just for Israel. It's a problem for every person who's followed God, right? Uh, Peter Matthew chapter 14. Jesus, if it's you, call to me and I will come to you on the water. And he is focused on Jesus and he gets out of that boat filled with faith and courage walking along the top of that water to Jesus. And then Matthew chapter 14 says his focus shifted. He saw the wind and the waves. And all of a sudden, he's focused on the obstacles instead of on God in the flesh. And he experiences fear, worry, and he begins to sink because he's focused on the obstacles instead of on God. I I, I don't want to be like the Israelites in this situation. 
I want to be a person who is focused on God instead of on those obstacles. How do we do that? I think the answer to shifting our focus from obstacles to God is participating in God-oriented worship in prayer and the Word. Participating in God-oriented worship in prayer and the Word. I want you to focus on that word, God-oriented, that phrase, God-oriented. Because sometimes when we face obstacles, we go to the Lord in prayer and we only reinforce the obstacles more and more in our mind and heart. Do you know what I'm talking about? We go to God and we go, have you seen the obstacle? That's a really big obstacle. God, can you take care of the obstacle? Can you get rid of the obstacle? Please, the obstacle, the obstacle, the obstacle. By the time we're done praying, we have only ingrained the obstacle more and more in our mind and heart. It's been the focus of our prayers. But when Jesus teaches his disciples a model for praying, the first half of the prayer is entirely about what? It's about God. God, it's about exalting your name. God, it's about the establishment of your kingdom. God, it's about your will being done. Jesus intentionally teaches his disciples a model for praying that gets our eyes off of the obstacles and onto our great God and calls us to use this as our pattern for prayer. Shifting our, our, our minds and our hearts away from obstacles onto God leads to faith and courage and trust. The same is true when we open the Word. When I open the Word in the morning, every bit of my flesh wants to run to the Word and say, what's in here for me? What's the Word for me? Now listen, the Scripture is filled with teaching that I need about my life but I'm not a disciple of Matt. I'm a disciple of Jesus. And so where does my time in the Word always start? It always starts with Him. Walking through the Word of God to discover more of who God is. To discover more of His greatness. To praise Him as we walk through the Word together. To thank Him for all that we see in here and all that He has done in our life. And so when we open the Word, I don't start with, what's in it for me? I start with, how can I know more of who you are and praise you more for who you are? What is it that calls our attention, our focus, from the, the uh, obstacles that we face in life over here to God and His greatness? It's God-oriented worship in prayer and the Word. We enter into it again and again because it gives us what we need more than anything, a shift in our focus, a shift in our perspective to God and His way of seeing things. Moses was focused in on God, and so he brings this before the Lord in verse 5. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. God calls Moses to come to the foot of the mountain of meeting. Right? Do you know what I mean when I say the mountain of meeting? Within the Old Testament, there is this place called Horeb, which is also at times called Sinai. And it is there where God first revealed himself to Moses as, I am. It is there that in a couple of chapters, God is going to reveal himself through the law 
about how we can love God and love each other. It is there that over 600 years later, God would call his despondent prophet Elijah and speak to him in a still, small voice. And God says, Moses, I want you to come to Horeb, and I want you to bring elders with you as you do so. And, oh, so important, bring that staff. Because what does that staff represent? Throughout all of these accounts that we have been looking at in in Exodus, that staff represents the power and presence of God that goes with Moses. Bring that staff, and I will be with you. And you will strike a rock. And that rock will break. And according to Psalm 78, rivers of water will come out of that rock for the people. You guys, can you see the beauty of this picture for us? Did the people of Israel deserve to have God save them here? What have we seen from the people of Israel? Grumbling, complaining, quarreling. They have been faithless and filled with doubt. As I read about this, it is a reminder that if Israel's salvation depended upon their merits and their goodness, then they wouldn't have been saved which is a constant reminder to me, isn't it? That if my salvation was based in my merits and my goodness, I would never be saved. But the people of Israel are saved by the grace and mercy and goodness of God, as I'm saved by the grace and the mercy and the goodness of God. Do you know that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, Paul says that the rock in this account is Jesus? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, Paul is walking through these events in Exodus that we have been looking at, and he is talking about the fact that they foreshadow greater events to come in Christ. And when he comes to verse 4, he declares, this rock is Christ. He says, they, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed, and the rock was Christ. Like every major event that we are looking at in Exodus, it simply prefigures the greater event to come that is true in Jesus Christ. And that we see here. The rock prefigures Jesus. Here the people, because of their actions, deserve to be struck in punishment by God. But instead, God strikes the rock... The rock is broken, and rivers of water flow forth in order to fully satisfy the people. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.4, this is a picture of what Christ has done. He is the rock. Like the people of Israel, we deserve the punishment of God for our sin and disobedience, but God struck the rock, Jesus, who took the penalties that we deserved so that rivers of water would flow forth and we would be filled with those waters and fully satisfied by what God has for us. What a beautiful picture this is. Christ the rock being struck on our behalf. Have you ever read Numbers 20 and the account of how Moses didn't get to enter the promised land? If you've ever read that account, then then maybe you realize that 40 years after Exodus 17, let that sink in for a minute, 40 years after Exodus 17, as the people are still in the wilderness, once again they face a situation just like this. 
It is dry, it is hot, and they have no water. Moses goes to God and God gives him these instructions. He says, speak to the rock and it will bring forth water for the people. And in Numbers chapter 20, Moses takes that staff of God and he strikes the rock twice with the staff and waters come out in order to satisfy the people. And God comes to Moses and he says, because you struck the rock, you will not enter into the promised land. And I got to admit, when I was young and I read that account, I'm like, what? Moses doesn't get to enter the promised land because he struck a rock? <laughs> what is going on here? What is going on here? I think in its simplest form, we recognize Moses disobeyed God. And disobeying God is never a small thing. Ask Uzzah. Right? Disobeying God is never a small thing. God said, speak to the rock. Moses said, well, but this worked last time and decided to strike the rock. He disobeyed God. But more than that, Moses broke the foreshadowing picture that God had given 40 years prior. If the rock represents Christ, and, and the rock being struck represents Christ's death on our behalf, Christ is not killed over and over again. Christ dies once for sins. And then, after we have received that salvation from Christ because He has died for our sins, we have needs and we speak to the rock, and the rock provides for our needs. God had this picture in which the rock was Christ. He had it set up, and when Moses chose to disobey God, he broke the foreshadowing picture that God had as he struck the rock multiple times. That's not what happens with Christ. He's not killed multiple times for our sins. He dies once, and then we speak to the rock, and he provides. Right? Moses broke this foreshadowing picture in Numbers chapter 20, and so God says, you, you won't enter into the promised land. In Exodus 17, what a, what a beautiful picture God has established of the rock being struck instead of the people and, and the waters flowing forth so that the people could be fully satisfied and the people were saved. No sooner are the people saved than they have to battle an enemy. And this is a reminder to us. No sooner are we saved than we have to battle a great enemy. Their enemy was Amalek, chapter eight, or verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. They face an enemy who's not only an enemy, but a relative. Amalek was the grandson of Esau. And so these people that are coming in order to fight Israel, who are they? They are the descendants of Esau. And who are they coming to destroy? The descendants of Jacob. Jacob and Esau, brothers who were pitted against each other by their parents, grew up in sibling rivalry to the point where Jacob didn't want to come back and see his brother again. Now, generations later, the descendants of Esau want to come and destroy the descendants of Jacob. Every man, woman, and child, they want to take their animals, take their goods. So what will Israel do in this situation? 
Well, here's their plan, verse 9. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. You ever wonder what, jo- uh, what Joshua thought, sorry, what Joshua thought of Moses' plan for him to go out and fight the battle while Moses went up on the hill and watched? Like, wait, what? You're going where? That sounds comfy. But in fact, Moses is going to be doing his own battling, isn't he? Verses 10 and 11, we see Moses' battle. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up on the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Wait. Moses raising his hands brought about victory for the people of Israel. When Moses didn't raise his hands, they were losing the battle. Why? What's up with that? Moses raising his hands represents intercessory prayer on behalf of the people. Throughout the scriptures, the raising of hands is spoken of a handful of times. And a majority of the times when the Bible talks about raising hands, it is in the context of being a symbol for prayer and intercessory prayer. As a matter of fact, that's true even here within the book of Exodus. In, in Exodus chapter 9, Pharaoh says, oh, okay, I'll release you. Just go and, and pray to God that he'll stop this hail that has come upon the people. And Moses responds to Pharaoh, When I have left the city, I will extend my hands to Yahweh. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know the earth belongs to Yahweh. He's going to go and pray to God on behalf of the Egyptians. He's going to intercede. And a sign of that intercession is that he is going to raise his hands to God. The psalmist says in Psalm 141.2, May my prayer be set before you as incense. Incense regularly represents the intercessory prayers of God's people coming up before him. May my prayers be set before you as incense, the raising of my hands as the easy evening offering. The raising of our hands is representative of our prayers before God, our intercessions before God. In the New Testament, we find the only command in the Scripture to raise our hands, and it happens to be spoken particularly to men. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. God says, when it, when it comes to my people interacting as a church, I don't want men at each other's throats in anger and arguing. Instead, I want their relationships to be about praying together interceding for each other. And what represents that prayer? The fact that they are lifting up holy hands to the Lord. And so we see in the scriptures, the raising of our hands represents our prayerful intercessions. And here, Moses is interceding to God on behalf of the people. And when he is in prayer for the people, they are winning. And when the symbol of that intercession no longer is taking place, they're not winning. How does it end up? But Moses' hands grew weary. Well, that's not good. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. 
And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. God saved the people of Israel. He did so through the sword, but only because of the intercessions that were going on here. God saved Israel, and immediately they entered into battle against an enemy. And the same is true in our life. As soon as he saves us, we enter into a very real spiritual battle. Within that spiritual battle, uh, our enemies are not the Amalekites or the Egyptians. Our enemies are, according to the New Testament, the flesh, the world, and the devil. And the flesh and the world and the devil conspire in order to seek our sinning, our faithlessness, our disbelieving and disobeying God. Like the Israelites, we are called to fight these enemies. Ephesians chapter 6 says the primary battle, the primary enemy that we face isn't flesh and blood. As much as we may be tempted to look out there and go, ugh, those people, ugh, those people. No, Ephesians 6 says the primary enemy in battle that we are involved in is a spiritual battle with spiritual powers, not flesh and blood. And so we must win the battle with the battle plan of Moses. The battle plan of being a people of prayer, constantly coming before our Lord, interceding. It's the only way that the battle can be won day in and day out. And do you notice here that, that our prayerful intercessions, they're a team sport. Moses couldn't get the job done on his own. Aaron and her were there to help him. And all of us are meant to be involved in prayerful intercessions together. We all need a team of people who are encouraging us, strengthening us, and helping us to be a prayerful people, praying with each other and for each other. Every one of us need that. Moses needed help in his intercessions. All of us need that kind of help in our lives. We all get discouraged. We all get tired. We all experience failings. We all, like Jesus said to his disciples, have times where our spirit is willing, but our flesh is what? Weak. And so we need people who are praying with us as a team. I want you to notice that when Jesus provides for us a model for his people to pray, it does not start, my Father in heaven. How does it start? Our Father. Lead us. Forgive us. It is a constant reminder that we are to be a praying community together, that we need each other to be interceding with and for each other. It's our only hope of daily victory in this battle, that we are a praying people. We run to God over and over again. And our need to run, for, run to God is seen in the final verses of the chapter. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I may utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it what? The Lord is my banner saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. What, what does he call, look back here, what, what does he call the, the altar that he has built here in victory? It is called, the Lord is my banner. Now, when we think of a banner, we may think of cloth hanging off of a building in order to advertise something. Or maybe we think of the advertisement at the top of a website when we hear that word banner. 
But this word means something different than that. This word is talking about that tall flag that went at the top of that extended pole that the army would carry into battle. It would have the emblem of the nation on it. And it could be seen throughout the battlefield. So that as the battle wore on and went on for hour after hour, sometimes day after day, and you found yourself in real trouble and you didn't know where to go and you didn't know where your people were, you could look around and see that banner lifted high and know that's where I can go for help. That's where I can go to rally with my people. That's where I can go for new instruction. And here we are told, it is the Lord who is our banner. The place we are to run, the place for our instruction, our rallying point. It's our only hope for victory if the Lord is our banner who we run to again and again. We're to be a people in prayer, constantly running to the Lord, our banner, to be in prayer with Him. Every time we come before uh, this table and take the Lord's Supper, we are rallying together around Jesus, our banner. We come back to that banner at this table and we recognize what he has done so that we might have life, that he is the rock who was struck in our place so that we might have rivers of living water welling up in us so that our souls might be fully satisfied in him. Before we take those elements, I want to lead us in a time of silent prayer. We've talked about prayer as that essential element that we need if we're going to be victorious here. And, and so let me lead us. I'll, I'll give you some things that you can be praying about. And would you just be silently praying about these things? If it helps you, you can bow your head, close your eyes. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Would you, would you praise and exalt God right now? Focus on his greatness. Your kingdom come. Would you pray for God to reign more thoroughly in your life, more completely in your life? Would you pray for his reign and rule to come into the lives of those around you who need him? done, would you pray for God's expressed will to become the most important thing in your life? Would you pray for His will to be done in specific situations where that you face? Thank mm-hmm. you.
give us this day our daily bread. Would you thank God for all of his provision in your life? And would you pray for his continuing provision, recognizing you want to depend upon him, not on self? Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven the debts of others. Would you confess sins before the Lord now? Pray for his forgiveness. not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Would you pray for God's strength to battle against temptation, particularly those temptations that are strongest in your life? Pray for purity and righteousness. prayerfully and joyfully worship Jesus together as we take the elements of the Lord's Supper. And so I want to invite you when you're ready to make your way to the tables, if you're a follower of Jesus, and take a piece of bread and a cup and you can return to your area. Uh, and I'll lead us in the taking of those elements in just a couple of minutes. But right now, would you stand with me and let's continue to exalt our holy, holy God together.